chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Now this chapter continues God's charges brought against Israel. And he spells out these charges very clearly. He makes them very clear as to what the sins are of his people. It was their sins that had brought about their sad condition. Their religion had become just a way of trying to cover their sins. Now, because of that, we can't fool God in any way, shape, or form. He sees into our heart. The Bible says he knows men's hearts. God wouldn't listen to them because of their iniquities. He wasn't listened to him because he couldn't hear well or he couldn't hear them or that he was too far away or too busy to listen. In Micah chapter 3 verse 4 it says this, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face to them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. A lot of people th- t- uh, today think that, that God has a hearing problem. Or he's not paying attention to our prayers. Or that he doesn't care about our prayers. God's hearing is perfect. The problem is with us. We're the ones that don't hear so well. Their sins are mentioned several times here in chapter 59 in verses 3 through 8. Isaiah uses a lot of different words to describe their sins. He uses the words iniquities, sins, defiled with blood, lies, perversity, empty words, mischief, viper's eggs, spider's webs, viper, works, conceive evil, evil, wasting, departing, destruction, crooked paths, darkness, transgressions, oppression, revolt, conceiving and uttering falsehood. All those words he uses in describing their sins. There's over 20 different charges that are brought against them. And it's really a sad picture because these are God's people. These are God's people that he's talking about. And for Israel, there will be a day when the nations confess their sin. And in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. In Zechariah 12, 11 through 14, it says, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself. So let's begin in chapter 59 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So here's Israel's condemnation. God is powerful. God is listening. God sees all things. He knows all things. And he wants to say to every church, here I am. I see what's going on. I know what's going on. You can't see me because your sins have have become a veil between you and me, a barrier. But he won't send us his power if we use it to strengthen the sinful position that we're in. 
So what are these iniquities and sins that cause him not to look at us? Whatever it is, it's something that we need to take care of right now and not wait another minute. The reason Israel wasn't saved in Isaiah's day wasn't because of any lack of ability or fault with God. Verse 2, Isaiah said, The Lord's hand was not shortened that he could not save, nor his ear too heavy that he could not hear. The problem is, as the psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He won't listen. Nor was it because of a poor connection in his communication with man that he didn't answer their prayers. It's the same problem today. It's not, any of, it's not any of man's problems that he has to overcome. It's his own sin that separates him from God. Listen to the comment of Alexander McLaren in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And because it's written in, in some of the old language, it, it may be a little hard to understand, but you get the gist of it. He says, it's not because God is great and I am small. It's not because he lives forever and my life is but a hand breath. It is not because of the difference between his omniscience and my ignorance, nor his strength and my weakness that I am parted from him. Your sins have separated you from your God. And no man build the babbles ever so high can reach there. There is one means by which the separation is at an end. And by which all objective hindrances to union and all subjective hindrances are are alike swept away. Christ has come and in him the heavens have bonded down, bended down to touch. And touching to bless this low earth and man and God are at once more. Now, all through this first section, God spells out the people's sins. It's a hopeless picture of the human race and of you and of me. And then we have a confession of Israel, which is coming in the future when the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, comes to Zion, Jerusalem. Prayer and obedience always go together. Remember that. Prayer and obedience always go together. Must always go together. Think of it. How can we disobey the word of God and then call out to him and expect him to answer? They must both go together. Verses 3 through 8. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does, in, uh, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths, and whoever takes that way shall not know peace. The things that breaks God's heart is the way we hurt each other and the things that we say and do to each other. That's what Isaiah describes in detail here in verses 3 through 8. How we mistreat each other is so significant to God 
Paul said in Romans 3.13, their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, blessing and cursing come pouring, pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. You know, how can we come in and praise God and before we're out of here or in the parking lot, say something derogatory about a brother and sister? Paul quotes verse 7 and 8 here in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, where he describes how badly we need a Savior right now. And verse 7 here condemns the sinner and his sin. And verse 7 shows us how quick they are to sin. Notice he says, Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. We're so often more faithful, we're more gung-ho to do evil than to do good. And when it comes to doing good and obeying the Lord, we drag our feet and, and we put it off as much as we can. But doing evil is done differently. Speed is ne never seems to be a problem. And I remember back in the old days, man, somebody wanted to go out and do something that was ungodly. Hey, hey I'm, I'm game. Let's go. Let's do it. Whatever it was. But, you know, somebody invite me to church. Or let's, well, you know, I, nah, it's not for me. And, and, you know, there was haste to do evil and, and dragging feet. To do something for the Lord or do something that was godly or that was right. Speed is never a problem when it comes to doing evil. But when it comes to doing evil, we, we do it right away. To do good, we take our time. Someone once said, error circles the globe while truth is still putting on its boots. It's time that we as God's people start to get as committed in doing right as evil people are committed in doing their evil. The evil, are, now the evil are standing up for their cause. Man, if we don't rise to the occasion, if we don't stand up and fight evil like this, this bill that, that's in if we don't stand up to we have nobody to blame but ourselves. The strongest, the church is strong when we're united. And, and we need to unite together for the cause of righteousness. And then verse 7 shows their contemplation of sin. Notice it says their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. It's sinful thoughts that led to their sinful works. And those who practice evil are those who first thought about evil. You know, many times when a big tree suddenly falls, you look at it from the outside. Man, it looks, it's big, it looks strong. And, and man, and, and then it, one, one day you know, in a storm, it, it, it falls to the ground. It's usually because it's been rotting from the inside for a long time. When a, sudden, when a person suddenly falls into great sin, it didn't happen overnight. It will be because of the evil thoughts that they have been entertaining for a long time. And at the same time they've been entertaining that, that evil thought, it, it's been rotting and weakening, weakening their character for a while. The encouraging of evil thoughts is everywhere today. You go into a store and where do they have a lot of these bad, nasty magazines right at the front. Right in the aisle while you're waiting, you can read all this stuff that's being said about people. TV shows, movies, social media, the internet. 
on and on and goes. The more you watch that stuff, the more your thoughts will be corrupted. You're feeding the flesh. Keeping company with evil people will also generate evil thoughts. And if you don't stop your thoughts of iniquity, as Isaiah says, you'll end up doing iniquity. And then verse 7 talks about the, the consequences of sin. Notice he said, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The consequences of sin are not what Satan advertises them to be. The path of sin leads to great loss. Sin promises you all kinds of good things. Prosperity and blessings are promised. But it's full of nothing but false promises and disappointment. And many times, you know, when we, when we commit the sins that we've been entertaining and, 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 you know, we justify it, we think, hey, it's just between me and the other person or whatever it might be. Or, or you know, we, we end up paying more than we bargain for. You know, sin will take you where you don't want to go and it'll cost you more than you are willing to pay. But see, Satan doesn't tell you that. Sin brings wasting and destruction, ruin and desolation, and eternal damnation are the real products of sin. And apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, verses 3 through 8 show us what we are like, even the people of God. So what happens now? Is there a way that we can pull ourselves up and out of this hole and move forward? Yes. And Isaiah basically says here, confess your sins. Look at verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. Isaiah says Israel's confessing here. And so he says, he says there's no justice among us. We don't know anything about living right. He says, we look for light, but all we find is darkness. We look for bright skies, and, and all we do is walk in gloom. Notice the change of pronouns here. It shows that there's another speaker. Instead of your and their, we read we, our, and us now. This is Israel's confession. They confess they're in darkness. They confess that their religious rituals have all been a big joke, a farce, hypocrisy. People's lives will stop being a, a, a hypocrisy when they get tired of pretending and living a lie. When they go to the Lord and confess that they're sinners and hypocrites and they receive Christ into their lives, then they, re, then they really begin to live. Not just in the unbeliever's life, but in the life of the church as well. And it would bring revival to our churches, which is what we really, re, really need right now. In 1 John 1, 7 through 9, John said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, speaking of Christ, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we stop walking in the light, which is walking in Christ, the blood stops cleansing. The blood makes me safe and the word makes me sure. 
God's promise to cleanse me from all sin, hey, that is a wonderful promise. It is a gracious promise, but it's not an excuse to sin. Don't take it as an excuse or a license to sin. Now notice Israel's confession here in verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. You know, the, the, the people are saying, you know, we, we feel our way around along the wall. You know, that's like a blind person feeling their way, touching the wall, feeling around like people without eyes. Even in the, in the brightest part of the day, they're saying we stumble around like it was dark and, and we're like dead people walking among the living. This is a picture of the man who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, who doesn't have a personal relationship with him. But when Israel makes their confession, they will make it one day in the future, and they will confess to these specific charges, and they will also give up their sins. They'll forsake their sins. When we confess to God, it should be specific, and then the sins are, first, are to be forsaken. And each sin should be confessed before God and forsaken. Verse 11. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but is far from us. Isaiah continues describing the people's frustration. He compares it to bears growling and the moaning of doves. They both point to that sadness that's without hope. Look at uh, verse 9 again. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. The most important word in this verse, here in verse 11, is therefore. I'm sorry, in verse 9 is therefore. When we humble ourselves before God in repentance, we'll stop asking Him why. And we accept His opinion of us and what it means. Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. The people are saying our sins are piled up before God. And they're telling against us. They're testifying against us. We know what sinners we are. There's no sign of self-righteousness here now as they confess their sin. Revival always involves confession before God and reconciliation with one another. Remember that. Confession before God and reconciliation with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Revival comes when we honestly look at ourselves. We always look at other people. You know, when when we sit sometimes in in a Bible study and and we might be sitting with with our husband or wife or, you know, friend and, and God says something, we'll poke him. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Instead of, Lord, search my heart. That's for me. Do I need to answer to that? You see, revival comes when we honestly look at ourselves and our shortcomings and how we don't measure up to God. And how God has brought us back into his favor. Isaiah speaks for the people here and he's confessing their sins and their hope and he's including himself because he said we. 
And he's confessing their hopeless condition before God. And in this confession, he claims that the transgressions, you know, like the apostasy from the Lord and continuing rebellion against him, he says they've multiplied before God and they will continue to multiply until we do confess and forsake them. Over and over again, the people go astray and act as if God is nowhere around. That we need to remember that everything that we do is right there in front of his eyes. It's not hidden from him. It's not a secret to him. There's no getting away with it. We read in Psalm 33, verse 13 through 15, it says, the, the psalmist says, The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees the whole human race. From his throne he observes all who live on the earth. He made their hearts so he understands everything that they do. He understands everything. He knows why. He knows our motivation. Plus, their sins have spoken against them. Their sins have given them the way, given them away. The people's sins and iniquities are present with the people and the people know them. In other words, they recognize them for what they are. Verse 13. Notice he goes on, In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of, from the heart words of falsehood. They're saying, we know that we've rebelled. We know that we've, defa- that, that we've denied the Lord. We know that we've turned our backs on our God. We know how unfair and oppressive we've been. And how we've carefully been planning our deceitful lies. And here Isaiah lists the sins that they just confessed. Getting right to the point. Going to the heart of the matter, he lists transgressing and lying against the Lord. The people in their worship said they believed in the Lord, but in their actions and thoughts, they have fallen from the Lord. Outwardly, their worship says they're being led by God, but in reality, it's idolatry. So it's really falsehood. Great pretenders. Their acts of worship are lies against God. They were great pretenders. And then he says, and departing from God. This speaks of apostasy, apostasy, which is to lie. And to transgress against the Lord. Where he says, speaking oppression and revolt. This means speaking in such a way that it brings oppression and a turning away from the Lord. And then the last line in verse 13, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, this last line shows how deep they went into depravity. The people are loaded with and bring forth words of falsehood. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. He's, t- he's talking about how morality in the government in government is gone. He says, our courts resist the righteous, and there's no justice anywhere. Truth has fallen in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Sounds per- pretty familiar today. It's really sad to say to see government, justice, righteousness, truth, and equity are nearly gone. One man said this, and man, it 
it is right on today. He says, where personal integrity cannot be attended upon, and integrity is sorely lacking in the world today. He said, where personal integrity cannot be depended upon, law loses its force. Look at all the cry to, to, to get rid of the police and, and, and stop funding police and, and to the point where, where they, they feel like, why should I go do anything? The people are so against us. Law loses its power. And also judicial proceedings lose their purpose. And communal life, society loses its stability. I mean, this guy, and this, was, this is an old quote. But man, it's exactly what's going on today. People without integrity can't be depended on. Law loses its power. Judicial proceedings lose their purpose. And that is to stand up for righteousness and truth. And the community, society loses its stability. And we are a very unstable society right now. This is exactly where we are today. Verse 15. So truth fails... And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, truth is gone. And anytime anyone who fights against evil, they're attacked. We stand for righteousness and we say, we're attacked. The Lord saw this and he was displeased to find there was no justice. In other words, unless a person is as wicked as others, they're going to they're gonna be persecuted. They're going to suffer loss. So the evil in Judah became widespread because of this. Society has reached its lowest point whenever dishonesty becomes the best policy. Verse 16. Notice what what, what God says now. Isaiah says of God. He, God, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. I sustained him. And, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Isaiah is saying here that, that God was so amazed to see that nobody intervened to help. So he himself, God, stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. The, the word here in verse 16, the word um, wondered is the word astonished. God was astonished that there was no intercessor, no prayer. The word astonished means to stun or to grow numb, to devastate or stupefy. In other words, God was stunned. He was numb. He was stupefied that nobody was praying for the people. In all of Israel, nobody stepped up to the plate and prayed for the people whose sin had separated them from God. Nobody was praying for them. Nobody stepped up to defend the Lord and proclaim his truth. I mean, imp- prayer is so important, church. In saying that God wondered about all of this, it doesn't mean he didn't know about it. When it says he wondered, it doesn't mean that he didn't know what was going on until he saw it. And then he goes, oh, man, I can't believe it. What's going on? Because it's impossible for any man to save man from sin. God himself, as the Messiah, would personally step in to save us. Verse 17 and 18. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. Now, in verses 17 through 18, this is the best and most detailed description of the Lord as a warrior. Think about that now. Exodus 15, 3, Moses, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The statement here in verse 3 of Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war, that may upset people. Especially in the liberal community who feel that anything relating to warfare is foreign to, the, to Christianity, is foreign to the word of God. It's out of place in the gospel and the Christian life. Some denominations have even taken hymns out of their hymnals that have anything to do with combat and warfare, including onward Christian soldiers. An old hymn has been removed from some hymnals. But Moses promised the people, the Lord shall fight for you. We are in a battle. We are in combat. We are in a spiritual battle. And one of God's name is Jehovah Sabbath which means the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. It's a title that's used almost 300 times in the Old Testament. Martin Luther wrote in his Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote these words, Our striving would be losing. We're not, we're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Jesus Christ, it is he, Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age age the same, and he must win the battle. Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3 to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We are in the Lord's army. And if there is in this world an enemy like Satan, and if sin and evil are hateful to God, then he has to wage war against those things. Isaiah 42, 13 in the New Living Translation says, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemy. You see, to only speak of God as a God of love. And then to eliminate God as light is to rob God of his attributes of righteousness, holiness, and justice. God is a warrior, and he has all the weaponry that he needs to win. The word clothing in verse 17 is a metaphor for how God displays himself. And there is a final day coming when God will show up on this earth to settle all affairs. To to settle every score with perfect justice, and there won't be any place to go, any place to hide from him, not even the coastlands, it says here in verse 17 through 18, which means to the ends of the earth. So we should never give up, we should never back down, and we should never give in, church. The evil that we see today seems to be worse than ever before, and it is getting stronger than it ever was, and it's growing stronger every day. But it's nothing to God. Satan's tactics are weak, they're temporary, and they're getting older every day. Jesus says, so let not your heart be troubled. But we as a church need to to unite and stand up against evil. Verse 19. 
So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. This, the, the, the verse here starts with a general statement that, that men all over the Lord will fear the Lord. Men all over the world will fear the Lord. Now, this is a godly, reverent, childlike fear that they have for Jesus acknowledging his wonderful name when they acknowledge his wonderful name. Nations from the furthest parts on the earth, from east to west, will worship the Lord. And the reason for this worldwide worship is because the Spirit of the Lord will come against the enemy. No enemy can conquer the Lord's people. The Bible says we're more than conquerors. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We know how it's going to turn out. He's always there to hold back our enemies and to show his sovereignty. And this is why men from the west to the rising of the sun worship him. God's intervention, God's stepping in is a joy to us, to his children. But to his enemies, he's their biggest fear. He's Satan's, he, God is Satan's greatest fear. Because the living God is both the redeemer and judge. <clears throat> he's both savior and judge. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. The Redeemer is going to come to Jerusalem to buy back, to redeem those in Israel who have turned from their sin. That's what the Lord says. He says, not all Israel is going to be saved. Romans 9, 6, Paul said, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Only a remnant will be saved. And there seems to be only a remnant today in the church who are actually saved. But the, rede- but the Redeemer is coming someday to Zion. And at that time, there's going to be a great confession of sin. Zechariah 12.10 tells us about that day. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Verse 21. As we close, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. So here's the bottom line. God says, this is my covenant with my people. My spirit will not leave you. And neither will my, lear, my words that I have given you. They will be on your lips and, the, and will be on the lips of your children and on your gi- grandchildren forever. And this is what the whole chapter points to here. The before and the after. What makes the difference between the world the way it is now and the world, way the world God promises? God's covenant. Isaiah makes it very clear here. What is a covenant? A covenant is a biblical covenant that God is promising himself. He's, he's pledging himself. A biblical covenant is God promising himself, binding himself to us. That he becomes our God and we become his people. We, mankind, has made the world a mess. Look at it today. It's a mess. But God is not. God won't accept defeat. Because his love isn't dependent upon his mood. He loves us. Man, he loves us for reasons we will never understand. 
And he declares his love with a sincere oath. He's pledging himself. He guarantees our future and he explains how he's going to get us there. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word and he'll never take them away. We should never separate the Holy Spirit and the word of God. God doesn't. We need both. Without the spirit of God, we will dry up. And without the word of God, we will get weird. Weirder than we already are. God's word, man, that makes us, makes us right on. And as long as we're preaching God's word, we're speaking God's word, we will always be right. We will always be right. Without the word of God, like I said, we'll get crazy, but the spirit and the word together will make us balanced Christians. That's why we need to read from Genesis to Revelation. As I've said many times, it takes a whole Bible to make us a whole Christian. God has committed himself, himself, swears by himself to renew the world by his spirit and his word. And it's a commitment that's based on what? It's not based on, it's not based on what we deserve, but on his promise to his son. The world's renewal is as sure as God's faithfulness to himself. That's why Isaiah urges us, to rejoice. Father, we thank you so much in your wonderful word, God. Wonderful word, God. Encouraging word, powerful word, holy word, God. And Lord, may we continue to keep our nose in the word of God, God. Searching, reading, studying from Genesis to Revelation, God. That we will get the full counsel of God. That we will get the full revelation of God. All that God has for us. Father, it comes from your word. And Father, we pray that as a body, as a church of believers, that Father, we would unite together and stand against sin and unrighteousness, God, and holiness and godliness, all the things that were listed in verses 3 through 8, God, all the different types and names of sin, Lord. Because, Father, there's strength in our, in our numbers, Lord. And Jesus Christ is our strength, and he's fighting the battle, Lord. So, Lord, may we, may we take seriously your word, God, and seriously the evil that is going on in this world. And Father, it's gotten here. It's gotten to the place that it has because I believe that many Christians didn't take this world seriously as far as its wickedness. And Father, we we know that it's that you're in control. And Father, it's it's we need to take that stand, Lord, and to unite and to stand up for holiness. The writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, we will not see God. Our, our salvation hinges upon holiness. And may we not take it lightly, Father. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.